Hello and welcome to another episode of Internet Marketing Revealed. My guest today is Matt Richards. He's a prominent social media coach based in the UK and he has quite an interesting backstory which I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, today where he cleared over £60,000 worth of debt. He overcame a drug addiction to become this successful social media coach, which he is today, which has actually seen him provide training in over 55 countries around the world. As I mentioned just now, he's very prominent on social media, but he's also branched out into podcasting and also YouTube marketing. So we do have quite a lot to talk about today. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really hoping that time isn't going to get away from us too much. But first of all, welcome to the show, Matt. Mate, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. You know, it's 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 awesome to come on to shows and chats like this because it opens up a lot of different content and stuff like that that's hopefully gonna help a few people as well so i appreciate you having me on no problem at all so i know that you do have this backstory that we're going to cover uh, in just a sec but before we get into that can we talk a little bit about uh your life before that uh yeah grow, you know where <laughs> you grew up and all that kind of thing so I'm from Wolverhampton. Um, you might not be able to tell to my accent. I've spent a lot of time being a coach trying to change it because it's probably one of the hardest ones to understand in the UK. <laughs> um, so it's I'm from Wolverhampton. I grew up, I had a good upbringing, to be honest with you. I'm not one of these I had a bad upbringing. I've got like any stories from my childhood that are like, you know, any anything bad happened or anything like that. Um, we literally went through school pretty much as... A uh, bit of a class joker, you know. Not, not. I did. I finished with good qualifications, but most of my work was done in the last month of school. I was like, kind of like, come to the end of school, I was like, damn, you know, I kind of need to have something to show for it. So I, I'll be honest, I passed through most of my exams from pure memory of just reading books and just literally ticking the boxes on the exams. I had no knowledge of what I was actually doing, um, and then, and then, literally from that point, uh, after leaving school, I went to go and work with my dad. My dad's got a building company. Um, he's got a block paving landscaping company and I spent a fair few years there to be honest with you because every six weeks holidays and stuff like that but I'd drag me into work he'd be like listen you're not sitting around being lazy you're not sitting in the house doing nothing you either come to work with me or you go and find another job right and, and that was the case it was like there was no room for me to sort of just chill you know like I think kids I think naturally as a kid, you want to just chill and play PlayStation. That was me. But there was none of that. My daddy's like, yeah, you can do that in your spare time, but you got to go and earn your money first, you know? So I went straight to work with my dad, um, worked my dad for a few years, working with family. If anybody's ever done that, you know full well, it's, it's fireworks. My brother worked alongside us as well. So between the fighting and the arguing and shouting at each other, we was actually pretty damn good at what we did, you know, the landscaping and sorting people's gardens out, whatever. And then eventually I went into working into a warehouse because I just got sick and tired of working in the rain and uh, cold and digging holes in the snow. So that was my journey up until then, you know, I went into sort of martial arts and stuff like that afterwards, you know? Okay. So how did you first get into the martial arts? And was that always something that you were interested in as a kid? You know, did you grow up watching the likes of Karate Kid and, and get inspiration <laughs> from that or... A little bit, yeah. I mean, I've always had some level of interest in it, like boxing and martial arts. Um, but for me, it was honestly, I remember in my primary school days, um, I was bullied at school. I wasn't in the cool club. I was bullied, right? So it's like, I think there's always been this thing inside of me where I wanted to do something that was cool. You know, and I think that's probably a subconscious thing. Looking back now with all the work I've done with mindset and coaching, I understood exactly why I did it. But back then it was a case of, well, I want to do something cool because then maybe I'll be a cool person. Do you know what I mean? Because when you spend so much time out of the cool gang, you spend most of your time worried about getting into the cool gang. Now, funnily enough, when we grow up now, we tend to, people these days tend to grow up with a very different mentality, which is a case of lumpy, you know, like it or lump it, do you know what I mean? Whereas there wasn't really that much around when I was a kid. I'm not that old, but at the same time, I think I think we've come a long way as a human race over the last 15, 20 years in regards to accepting people that are different and accepting people from different backgrounds, etc. So to me, the martial arts was just a, a chance for me to become cool. And I, I love doing it at the same time. I've got a bit of an aggressive personality, but I want to say to people, I, I've never hurt anybody. I think sometimes if you say you've got an aggressive personality, they're like, oh, he just beats up everybody he sees. I've never had a fight outside of a ring. 
You know, there's only ever been once or twice when I've had to use self-defense. I won't get into that. But like, I'm not an aggressive, I'm not really a hurtful person, but I'm very much a case of a red personality, you know, somebody that was a bit of a bull in a china shop. So, uh, you know, martial arts for me was a good way to sort of express that without doing damage to people around me. You know, it's like if you've got this thing inside, like a bit of rage built up inside of you, go and hit a punch bag for a few hours and all of a sudden the world feels like a better place. So it was, it was good for me for discipline and it was good for me to sort of just feel like I was doing something a little bit cool, you know? Yeah. So what um, martial arts did you, did you get into then? Um, I started off in karate and self-defense classes. So I, I remember when I first started, my dad used to come with me because he was like, well, I'm going to come with you. And I th I'm not sure if he was interested or if it was a case of he wants to keep an eye on me at the same time. Um, so I started off in like karate, did that for like four or five years, got some, uh, sorry, four or five months, got some gradings and stuff like that. But then I realized like I started, UFC was starting to get big on the TV and, and, and cage fighting really started to become a thing. So I was like, do you know what? I want to do that. So after that, the, the following few years, I focused a lot on Muay Thai, um, which is uh, from Thailand. If anybody's ever seen it, uh, what is it now? They call it the, uh, there's an actual phrase for it. I can't remember it live on whatever. But basically with Muay Thai, that was probably the most vicious sport on the planet. And I was like, well, throw myself in the deep end, right? Everything pretty much goes, knees, elbows, punches, kicks, whatever, right? Um, and I took that bit of an obsession with Muay Thai. And then I also liked the idea of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because... The whole point of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was to take away what everybody else has. You know, so if you've got a boxer, you take his arms away from him. If you've got a kickboxer, you take his legs away from him. So it was a case of, to me, it was a self-defense that I could utilize in the day-to-day -day world. You know, whereas no disrespect to some of the others, but the the I found them a lot more situational. Whereas Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is more a case of self-defense. I didn't want to go out and beat people up. But if somebody wanted to beat me up, I wanted to be in a position I could look after myself, you know. So it was a it was a much more passive type martial arts. So that's what I got into. Yeah, that's uh, totally fair enough. You know, growing up on the the mean streets of Wolverhampton, oh you mate, know, yeah, <laughs> you never know what kind of situation you'll find yourself in. Yeah, so I can I can understand why you'd want to to do that and to combine that then with the more vicious sounding mai tai, you'd be you know, quite the, quite the weapon. <laughs> yeah. I was, you know what, mate, I was good at what I did. I was good because I've, I've always had this personality in life, an addictive personality, which has been my biggest asset and also be my biggest downfall at times is I can't just do something. I have to either be the best or I have to be competitive or I'll or just, and some people think that's a downside to, to me, it does have downsides to it, but at the same time, I think it's got a lot of plus sides as well, because you don't tend to play games too often. You tend to kind of go for what you want. And it was just, you know, it just allowed me to build a really solid foundation for my life moving forward. I mean, even now, I don't practice martial arts as much anymore. I will go and hit the punch bag and stuff. But the whole discipline behind it, I mean, martial arts, people seem to think of martial arts are just going and beating people up in the street randomly and acting how hard you are. I mean, like, when I tell people I used to be a cage fighter, half of them are like, really? Because there's like this sort of negative stigma around, like, martial arts and cage fighting. You're a thug. You like to beat people up. You like to lamp people or whatever. And that wasn't me, you know, to me, it was just about discipline. What I learned from martial arts was to respect people. That's why I never hit anybody outside a ring, because to me, there's ways to deal with things in life that don't involve punching somebody's head in. And so what you'd expect me to get from martial arts was actually the complete opposite. You know, it was more a case of the discipline, the respect. We've got man, I've always got manners for people, always respect people's time personal space. And that for me, I just think, I just think I don't like to sort of say what people should do with their kids. But I think it's something people should look to integrate into their lives, martial arts, just for the self-defense aspect, but also for the respect aspect and that stuff like that as well, just to have some sort of respect for other people. Because I think once you harness some sort of power, which a martial arts allows you to do so, I think it teaches you a little bit more respect around it and respecting other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned that you did cage fighting as well. So how far did you take this uh, passion for, for martial arts then? Um, I mean, for, initially it started out with just a few interclub competitions with Muay Thai. So basically with interclub competitions, you put a couple of pads on, put a headgear on, and you go and fight somebody else from wherever they've come from, right? You get people from all over the country, sometimes different, different countries, right? Um, and that's where it started, a few competitions like that. Now, my very first fight um, in Muay Thai, I'd, I'd been training for about six or seven months. And like I said, 
throw myself in the deep end. I went straight to the main event of a local event. And it was my first fight. I've been training less than six months. I went up, I went up against the guy that had been fighting for years. <laughs> to be honest with you, he had a record that was a lot longer than mine. Mine was zero, zero, zero. His was more like six, five and whatever. So he had like 10, 12 fights. Um, and literally there's thousands of people. And we, it was it was an awesome fight because it was it was just two people standing in the middle of the ring just beating the crap out of each other, basically. It was like the classic Rocky film. I've got the video somewhere on my, on my laptop. And we just literally hammered each other for like four rounds. And like, it was awesome. And I just loved the buzz. I loved the feeling. And then sadly in the fifth round, all I wanted to do was get to the end because I was the underdog. I went straight to main event. Like I was, I was fighting an experienced fighter. I probably shouldn't have been there, being honest with you. But at the same time, I loved it. Uh, the last round, I got caught with a, a leg kick across the uh, temple here and it just completely flatlined me. I woke up in a hospital and, um, you know, I got blue lighted to a hospital. I had to go and have a proper brain scan and check for concussion and all this type of stuff, like a scan. And for a lot of people that would put them off, they'd be like, damn, like, dude, you've had a brain scan in your first fight. Why don't you just like find something else to do with your time, you know? <laughs> but for me, it lit a fire inside of me, which was like, I want to go again, but I don't want to lose next time. So that's when fighting really started to become a serious thing for me. I mean, I would train five or six hours a day. I'd wake up in the morning at like five, six a.m. So I could get two hours of training in before I got my building work with my dad at like seven, seven thirty. And then when I finished uh, working with my dad, like four or five, I was back in the gym for six and I'd stay there till 10 o'clock at night. And I would do that five, six days a week. And I just, I just become obsessed with it. I loved it. I was entering tournaments. I was driving up and down the country in Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments, taking gold medals. I think I won like six or seven gold medals. Um, I just took things really seriously. I just loved it. And then after that, it was like, well, I kind of want to get in the cage now. And from that stage, I went from just literally doing a few competitions and a few full contact fights into becoming like a semi-professional cage fighter or mixed martial artist. And you know, it allowed me to just sort of have fun. I, I loved fighting. You know, I did love fighting, even though I'm, it's funny because when somebody says they love fighting, you'd think they'd be fighting all the time. I just love being in the ring because it was just like two people just going at it. And at the end of it, you shake hands and then you train and you come back harder next time. Whereas like to me, I thought that was awesome. You know, whereas fighting in general, I thought was ridiculous. You know, people fighting in the street or punching somebody and trying to hurt them. And for no real reason, I think get in the cage, have a fight and shake hands afterwards. You know, I think that's how problems should be solved. You know, it should be like, if you've got a problem with somebody, stick your gloves on and go and have a fight. I mean, go and sort it out and then shake hands and get move on or try and use your words or whatever. But I just loved it. You know, I, I really, really did love it. And I took it very seriously. And it took me some really good paths. But then, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that people look at and get the wrong impression of, if that makes sense. Yeah. What was the, the timeline then before you, you were hospitalized in your first fight to going into the cage for the first time? Probably about two or three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't mess about. <laughs> no, I was like, I was just like, I got knocked out in front of a thousand people. I was like, I need to fix this, man. I had like my friends that came there. My family was there. My mom never came to any fight. She's like, I'm not going to any of that crap. You know, there's no way I'm going there. Watching you getting your head punched in. I don't want to see that. I'm like, well, cheers for the confidence boost, mom. You know, I'm going to try not to get my head punched in next time. But um, two or three months from that, I was in the cage. There was an event that was local. And uh, this guy said, you know, we've got a crowd of like a couple of thousand people here. Do you want to come and have a fight? And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's let's have a go and see how it goes. And my first fight lasted, I think it was 65 seconds. 65 seconds, I won with a guillotine choke. Uh, this guy had come all the way over from the other side of Wales. And uh, yeah, I remember training like 12 weeks for a fight that lasted 65 seconds. Um, and, and I went undefeated as a mixed martial artist, actually. So uh, there's only ever, I had three semi-professional fights and only two of them lasted longer than 70 seconds. Wow. So you, you had a, one of, a natural, one of them, one of yeah. Them, so you had a, a natural flair or natural talent uh, for, for the, for the fighting. Did you ever consider then that that could be some kind of career for you? Oh, for sure. That's where I saw myself. I, I mean, I, I trained and sparred against, uh, I remember having a training session against the great Royce Gracie. Now, if people don't know who Royce Gracie is, he's basically the Muhammad Ali of cage fighting. Like if you go onto the UFC and search Hall, Hall of Fame, like the probably the most popular and most well-known person is Royce Gracie because he put the whole, 
he was he was doing mixed martial arts back when mixed martial arts wasn't as cool as it is now so what the way mixed martial arts used to work was you'd have somebody that would be a boxer and then you'd fight a karate person or you'd have a kickboxer that would fight a jiu-jitsu person and that's what it was all about was trying to find the best martial arts like and that was called the ultimate fighting championship you know people like ken shamrock and the wrestlers and stuff like that that's where they started so Royce Gracie was basically the guy that would fight somebody that's like 10, 20 stone heavier than them, or these hardcore boxers that nobody would play with and touched it. And he would literally destroy them with jiu-jitsu. He'd just literally get them on the floor and have them squealing like a pig and giving up like in, in no time. So to meet and spar alongside somebody like that really lit a fire underneath me thinking, you know what? Like he, he kicked my ass. I'm not going to pretend this was even like he literally destroyed me for the size of him. He's only like a foot taller than me. And he's not stocky, but I felt like I was wrestling somebody that was like 35 stone. It was ridiculous. Like it was just like wrestling the Hulk. So when I start, when I sparred alongside somebody like that and shook his hand and spoke to him, I was like, this is it, man. That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to go and fight. I want title fights. And I had three fights, one or three fights. I had one more fight and then we was talking about titles, but I never got that far. <laughs> okay. So it seems that you had literally the, the world at your feet or your opponents at the very least from what you say, there, <laughs> given your undefeated status. So what went wrong then? What went wrong was um, at the end of my third fight, my third fight uh, lasted, I think it was like 65 seconds. I won with the armbar. Um, so this guy had come over from Wales. I had a lot of people come from Wales trying to beat me up. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> and this guy came over from Wales. Uh, I won with an armbar in the first round and it just felt great because I had... As I began to go through martial arts, my crowd grow, grown and I become a lot more popular, you know. So instead of having like 20 people buy tickets to my fight, now I was the top ticket seller in the roster. I was taking like 200 tickets. I was taking 150 tickets and these people was buying them and it just felt good. So when I went out after my third fight, which you go out, have a drink with people, stuff like that, um, I just felt popular. And I think now looking back, it goes back to those days of me being bullied and stuff like that. I just wanted to fit in. And all of a sudden I felt like I was a cool person. You know, there's people coming up to me, shaking my hand. There's people buying me drinks There's people. And I just kind of liked the whole feeling of being around people and being a bit more popular than I was. Do you know what I mean? And um, yeah, from that point, I, I tried class A drugs for the first time, in particular cocaine. And I tried drugs for the first time and literally that was it. I was hooked almost immediately. I mean, if anybody's ever had any experience with class A drugs or cocaine in particular, it's it's one of those drugs that just literally grab you and that's it. And even me as, as mentally strong as I was, I was in a position where I was like, no, I can take it. It's fine. I'll do a bit and then I'll get back into my training. But it never, that never materialized. You know, once I sort of took that path, that was it. It was a case of the only thing that mattered to me anymore was getting out and taking drugs. And what started as like a one night thing turned into like four or five days a week type thing. Do you know what I mean? And that was it then. You can't take drugs and then go and fight at the same time because that's just not possible. Plus, I wasn't turning up to training either. So it's it's that's when literally I ruined everything in, in the space of about six or seven months. Yeah. So that sounds like a very fast escalation yeah, like down the that. other side of the hill, <laughs> you know, compared to your your fast ascension to to, to going from a, a martial artist to to a cage fighter, then you you come down the other side of the hill, then where it's just this this downward spiral. So, were you with your 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 now wife at that time as well? Yeah, we've been together since we was like fifteen. So, um, I met my wife on MSN. MSN Messenger, if anybody remembers that, uh, the classic chat up line, ASL was the, the one that did the damage, right? <laughs> that was it, we was together. Um, so my wife's been, well, she, back then, obviously, she's my girlfriend, but she's been through the whole entire process with me. Um, and I think that was probably the only reason I'm still here today, because my drug addiction got so bad that I would be going out and going missing for like three or four days at a time. And it wasn't a case of like me going out on these crazy partying things. I would just be like taking drugs and drinking and that would be it. You know, it wasn't like, you know, people get the impression of somebody being out for four days. They expect you to be on a yacht with like thousands of women, like loving life, you know, like Dan Bazarian type thing. It was nothing like that. It was just a case of sitting around with other people that like to take drugs and taking drugs and drinking and talking crap most of the time, you know, and, but I would do that. The thing is with cocaine is it's sort of, 
you lose the ability to understand time. So what I thought was like a night out was actually like three nights out because you can literally start taking cocaine and throughout the evening, all of a sudden you look at your time and you're like, damn, it's Monday. And you went out to like Saturday. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like time goes so fast. So that was the biggest problem with it was like when I was talking to my wife, she was like, no, you need to come home. It was almost like it was like going to the pub for an hour with your mates. And what it felt like was having your mate, your, your wife phone you an hour later, like, you need to come on. Wait, I need to stay out. I've only been out a little bit, you know, like, God, I've been here for one hour. And that's where a lot of the friction started was because my mind was so messed up that when I was out for days, I was thinking I was out for hours. And, and that was the crazy thing about it. So the fact that she stood by me, I have no idea why, but the fact that she stood by me is probably the only reason I'm still here right now because I was on a path of, of self-destruct, that's for sure, you know? Yeah, so that's interesting where, where you mentioned the the concept of time there. So if you weren't really aware of, of how long you were you were out of the house for, I guess then that meant you didn't really, I suppose, take into account or comprehend the impact that, that was having on, on, on your wife and, and your family who must, you know, kind of looking on from afar now, looking at this, this kind of spiral into destruction. Yeah, like that was probably the worst bit was because obviously a phone battery will only last for like a few hours. So for this period of time, my phone would be dead as well. So they're sitting there thinking like, is he dead? Has he been kidnapped? Has this happened? Has that happened? And the thing is with drugs, it messes up your mind so bad that you always think you're in the right. You know, so I'd have somebody phone me up panicking after four days. Sometimes this could have been like somebody I knew. Sometimes this could have been a family member. And I'm literally in a position like, why are you going mad? Why don't you calm down? I'm not going to come home if you're all going wild at me. And also as well, when you're in that position, you're taking the drugs consistently. It's almost like you're scared of reality because you're like, well, I'm going to go back to an earful anyway. I'm going to go back to all these people having to go at me anyway. I might as well stay out an extra day. I might as well stay here. And it's almost like you're scared to go back to reality, but not just because of the whole argument aspect of things, but also when you're taking drugs, what goes up must come down, you know? And, and you could be on top of the world taking drugs, going wild. And it wasn't just one form of drugs. I mean, I remember once I went to go and visit a friend in jail. Um, and when you go and visit people in jail, you have to do a drug test. Uh, and then the, the dog sniffer dog would come around, you do a drug test. And I remember once I was tested for 14 different substances and I failed for 12 of them, right? And like looking back, it was like, damn, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, it's one of those things that is funny and isn't funny at the same time. But like I failed for 12 of 14 different substances. Like there was, uh, what was on there? There was like ketamine on there, there was speed on there, MDMA was on there, there was ecstasy was on there, there was all these different drugs, right? There's cocaine was on there, cannabis was on there. I felt for pretty much all of them, right? And um, so it wasn't just like one drug, it was like everything, you know? It was, these were just crazy drug-filled binges, right? And I remember failing, this lady stood in front of me and she's like, well, you couldn't possibly have taken all those drugs, could you? And I'm like, no. And she's like, the machine must be broken. She let me in to go and visit my friend anyway. And I'm like, your machine's spot on. Like, I've taken all those in the last 48 hours, you know? Um, but that's the kind of position I got in is my mind was so messed up. I felt like I was right and everybody else was wrong. And, and that was probably the worst part about it was you don't even know what you're doing is wrong. You know, you just think it's the most acceptable thing. And you start to think, why isn't everybody else doing this? And that's why I really sympathize with addicts these days because some people look at them and say, well, screw that person. They're an alcoholic or they're a drug addict and this. But the thing is, when you've been in that position, it's almost like people will say to you, why are you doing that? You've got kids, you've got family. But when you're in that position, you don't care about yourself, never mind anybody else. You know, so it's 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 such a weird space to be in. You know, it's it's and like I said, what goes up must come down. So the periods of time when I wasn't on the drugs was when my mental health took like a serious hit, you know, like failed suicide twice. You know, when I say fail, I had a really good go at it. I didn't want to, I wouldn't want to wake up anymore because I knew what I was doing was wrong in the down time, but that didn't stop me from doing it again. And then I'd go high again. And then I'd be scared of coming back down again. And then when I come back down, I'm like, I don't want to go high, but if I don't go high, I'm going to stick like this. So it was like, it's like your head's at war with yourself. It's like, it's like having a war in your own mind and it's almost like whatever you do is the wrong decision. You know, if I stay off the drugs, I'm going to feel like shit. So I'll, I'll take the drugs. If I take the drugs, then I'm going to be back in this position next week. 
And that's why I thought to myself, there's no other way out of this. You know, like I, I, I got nothing to live for. I'm not going to be able to change this. I'm stuck. And that was where I found myself, you know, in a position where I had all this death hanging over my neck. Drugs aren't cheap. You know, I literally some of the, some of the nights out, you could go out and spend hundreds of pounds. Right. And that's, that was the position I found myself in it was like, shit, what do I do now? And it was just, it was just a horrible feeling, you know? Yeah. It sounds like you were caught up in a, a real vicious cycle yeah. there. And uh, yeah, I, I can completely em- empathize there that it would be difficult to think that there is a way out of that. And mm-hmm. you just touched upon there then that, uh, that the drugs weren't cheap. So no. is, is that what fueled that tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt? It didn't help because the thing is, what happened was, was uh, my daughter was born on the back end of the drug addiction, right? So for the last sort of like, for the first six months of my daughter's life, I was still a drug addict, right? So, so what happened was, is I've, I didn't think of myself as a bad parent, but I was a bad parent because of what I was doing. Right. But in regards to I don't want people to get the wrong impression here, because if people think of drug, drug addict and they think of like parent and they think of somebody who's in debt, they think of somebody that's like the kids are walking around in rags and they're going taking loads of drugs. It wasn't like that. And that's what that's what happened with the debt that my daughter still had all the best clothes. My daughter still went on holidays. We still did things like a normal family. I was a secret drug addict for two years. I just want to mention that as well. Nobody knew I took drugs. You know, because because it was kind of like I went from a martial artist and from I've got an amazing family, like a great family on both sides. Zoe's family and my family. So the idea of me taking drugs was just ridiculous to these people. So I went through all this pretty much on my own. You know, they, they sort of saw me going out and they just thought, oh, he's going through some crazy period in his life where drinking and stuff and partying is wild. Or maybe they thought some other stuff. I don't know. But I don't think any of them thought like he's addicted to drugs, right? So, so that's what happened is I kind of lived this as a bit of a secret for a while. Um, and then literally as my, as my daughter was born, like we would always get her the best clothes, best stuff. So debts would rack up, you know, like next bills, this bill, that bill, taking out loans to cover the cover their house and stuff. Because I wasn't on a lot of money either. I was on like a basic wage. So I was on like a bit of a basic wage and living far beyond my means. And before you know it, you're, you're 50, 60 grand in the hole, you know, because you take one loan to pay another loan. And this one has better interest that has lower interest. And then in a period of time, you're kind of taking really bad financial decisions just to get by. Do you know what I mean? As opposed to now we manage debt. So if I take a loan on now, it's to pay something else. And then I'll use this to pay that. I've got more, much more financial knowledge. But I don't really take much like that anymore, to be honest with you. It's kind of put me off. But back then, I didn't have that. It was a case of if somebody was willing to give me money, I was like, yes, I'll take it. I'll worry about the interest later, and then I'll pay this. And then that's what kind of left me in a really bad, bad mess, to be honest with you. Yeah, the, the phrase, Robin Peter, to pay oh, Paul, mate, that was me. Uh, springs was to mind there. And yeah, it sounds like you were, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you were in that, that situation. So at what point then, was, was there a particular scenario where you thought, I've had enough of this. Things have to change for me. Yeah, I think for me, it was at the lowest point of the depression and the mental health side of things. If anybody's ever been through depression, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about there. The trouble is now with depression, it's a word that's just thrown around left, right and center, right? It's like people feel a little bit sad and they're like, oh, I'm depressed. To me, personally, what depression was, was there was no feelings. You know, I remember like there was so many, I didn't love myself. I didn't love anybody else. I mean, sometimes I would just literally sit and stare at a wall for hours and and to me that was acceptable it was like yeah whatever right so i wasn't scared from my life ending i didn't really want to live i didn't care if i lived or not it was just like this feeling of like really just not bothered at all do you know what i mean and i remember once holding my daughter and like i said she's like she's like a little doll she's like six seven months old and i remember holding her and i was like i know i should love her but i don't feel like i do you know, and it was such a weird feeling there because I know you're you're a family man yourself. The idea of not loving your own kids is just insane, right? But I was so messed up mentally, it was almost like I just felt numb towards everyone and everything. Like it was almost like I know what I should feel, but it's just not there. You know, and it was just like I just felt like I was trapped inside of my own body and my emotions switch had just been switched off. And then I was like, that kind of hit me like a brick wall. Then I was like, Matt, you really are effed up right try not to swear but like you really are like like you're you're here on your daughter and, and you think 
this thought process is acceptable. You've got somebody here that depends on you in your future and you think it's acceptable to just not wake up in the morning or just to not be here anymore. And that kind of then started like my mind started working. I was like, right, I need to start making some decisions. So I stopped going out and drinking for a period of time. Um, I found myself in a job because I had the idea, well, if I can start loads of different things, then that's going to give me the excitement to want to try something new, right? Or it might bring my fire back. I tried the martial arts. I couldn't get back into it because once the fire was gone, the fire was gone. And also every time I went back to train, I couldn't just train because somebody would be like, hey, you're fighting again or fighting. It was, it was so, so much pressure to sort of get back to being the old man. Do you know what I mean? So for me, it was just working in a warehouse. I was packing dog meat and chocolate. I just want to emphasize this because this is kind of a funny story as well. I remember I did an interview once and I said I was packing dog meat and chocolate and uh, I got sent over like this horrible message in Messenger like, you're like the most sick, horrible human being I've ever met. What a sick individual. How can you do stuff like that? Because when I wrote I was packing dog meat, they thought it was literally like minced dog or, or like minced animals or something, right? <laughs> so when I say for the international people who might be listening to this, dog meat is like a phrase we use for, for dog food, right? So like a tin of dog food. So, um, but um, anyway, that's what I was doing for a living. And then at that period of time, my wife signed up to a network marketing company without me knowing with my credit card. So I was like, you know what I mean? It, it started to get a bit grouchy. And uh, it kind of, from there, it started a crazy journey where I was like, started to meet new people, started to connect with new people. So I started off as like a network marketer, made some good money, and then started this whole personal development journey that kind of brought me to where I'm at today. You know what I mean? This whole process of, of going out there, helping people and, uh, you know, doing good things and making money at the same time. I think it distracted me for long enough to reprogram that need in my brain that I, that's the life that I needed. And that, the, the distraction for me was enough, you know? And I think anybody that's going through mental health issues, I'm no expert, I'm not a psychiatrist, not a counselor, but for me personally, it was having something to focus on that I could love and enjoy, but meant that I can get around different types of people as well, because it was environment that made me become a drug addict. You know, being around the wrong type of people consistently is what did that. So if in order to be able to do that in a negative way, we can also use that in a positive way by hanging around the right type of people and, you know, potentially moving yourself forward that way. Yeah, so you, you got into the network marketing then and at what point then did you think, right, well, network marketing by itself isn't enough. I need to take this on to the next level. And you decided that coaching was going to be your, you know, your, your calling, you know, your, your vocation going forward. Well, I did a lot of different things, right? I mean, I started as a networker in a couple of different companies. I was an affiliate marketer and I was good at what I did. You know, I remember once in, in a company, I sold over 15,000 pounds worth of product in one month, you know, so I knew a thing or two about selling. That was me personally. It wasn't a team or anything. But I love the whole idea of network marketing and I love the whole idea of sort of like, you know, building a team and training people and helping people to come better. I think maybe it's because of my background. I was like, well, I've come from a shitty place. So I want to see if anybody else is feeling pretty crappy or they want to improve and I can help them, you know? So I started network marketing. Then I moved into affiliate marketing. So representing other people's products to sell. Um, as that, I was, I was ranked as a top rank affiliate for like six months running. I had for 100,000 marketers, uh, some huge names. I'm not going to name drop because that's not my star. But like there's there some huge names on this list and I was, I was ranking alongside them. Some of these marketers have been around for like 20, 30 years. And, and so from that point, I was kind of like, well, I, I quickly realized that I loved the online industry, but I wanted to be in a position where I could work with anybody that I wanted. You know, whereas if you're in a company, it's almost like sometimes it's kind of like a bit of a war. Like we've got this tribe over here. We've got this tribe over here. We've got this tribe over here and we're all fighting. My company is the best. My product's the best. My opportunity is the best. And I, I didn't like that aspect of it, you know? So I was like, I want to be able to go over to that tribe and work with those people. I want to go over to that tribe and work with those people because I just loved working with people in general. So me becoming a coach was a way for me to say like, listen, guys, I'm not perfect. God, I used to take drugs 60 grams worth of debt. I messed up my life, but here's what I did to make some good money. Here's what I did to make some sales. And once I started generating the results, that was kind of like my new drug for me because somebody had come to me and say, Matt, I made a grand this week. Or Matt, I made it, I've recruited for the first time. Or Matt, I made some sales. And that kind of started a snowball effect for me. And I was like, damn, I kind of love this whole idea of, you know, helping other people to achieve something because that was the type of person I was before the drugs. You know, in my martial arts, I used to turn up an hour early to class because there was young kids who'd have different stages. 
and I'd stay around the young kids, helping them hold the pads and teach them to keep the hands up and stuff like this. After the class, I would stay an hour the same, just to stay behind, see if there's anybody less experienced than me. Let's let's get your armbar tight. Let's let's help you with the cross choke. Let's help you with this leg lock. So it was always a case of me trying to help other people, but this really gave me a platform in order to be in order to be able to do that. You know. Yeah. So with your your early stages then as a coach, how were you trying to attract customers or, or to make yourself known to try to position yourself as a coach in the industry who's capable of, of helping other people get results? Um, back then, it was a case of Periscope. Periscope was, uh, it was before we had Facebook Live, we had Periscope, which was the first, I was, I'm not sure if it's the first, but it was one of the first live video streaming softwares you know where you could literally go on there and people give you hearts and stuff i don't know if it's still around anymore but like i just thought to myself you know what i kind of like being on camera i didn't like being on camera because i'll be honest i was a natural introvert so the whole idea of being on camera to me was like petrifying right but i kind of grew to love it so i started shooting videos i started putting posts on facebook started you know doing what people advise you to do provide content and over a period of time people will follow you but for like the first six to eight months, apart from the people I could sell to who had already known me from what I used to do, like the network marketing, et cetera, I wasn't really reaching anybody new because nobody would watch my videos, nobody would comment to my posts. I was writing blog posts. I remember writing like 30, 40 blog posts and nobody read them. Um, you know, I, I, it was very much a case of a bit of blind faith. I was like, well, I'm going to keep doing these videos. If somebody watches it, fantastic. But if somebody doesn't watch it, I'm going to get better at videos anyway. So I've got nothing to lose here. So I, I need to practice. I might as well practice and see if anybody's going to follow me along the way. You know, and that's kind of how I started my business was all organically. It was like, well, I want something that anybody can do. And if a drug addict, ex-drug addict, 60 grams worth of debt, who has no qualifications or nothing, can jump on and start talking about stuff on the internet, then I want to keep it as simple and straightforward as possible, you know, because I like simple stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm a simple individual. I, I like just living a basic life, regardless of how good our business does, I still love to just go and chill on a fishing bank or just go and sit and do nothing. And that's my enjoyment. And some people are like, well, you're sad. That makes me happy. So this whole idea of keeping things simple was for me. And I think anybody over a period of time, maybe not initially, can just hit that record button and say what's on their mind. And that's how I started to build things initially. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are in that position, you know, Everybody starts from zero. Everybody starts online without an audience. And then it's down to how persistent and how consistent you are with the content that you're putting out before you start to gain some traction and see some results. So how long did it take you then from when you first started on social media trying to attract new clients before you actually got that traction and started seeing some results of your own? It's hard to pinpoint it exact because I was still making sales. You know, I was still closing people. I was making sales. Like I said, I had good success online. You know, it wasn't a case of I was coming online, not making any money. I was, I still was making thousands of pounds a month. But what was happening was it was kind of like I couldn't sort of bridge the gap. Everybody who was buying from me was people that I would be building relationships from a long period of time. Whereas what I wanted to achieve was to have the posture and credibility where people would would sort of tell their friends and then their friends would come and buy my course or invest in me. A bit like we see with like these big gurus online where people are like, I'm just going to buy stuff because it's him, right? So in order to get to that stage, I would say probably took me a couple of years. You know, I think you, you've got to be in the driving seat for a period of time. It's almost like you've got to bang the drum long enough until people start to listen, you know, and, and that was it for me. I think the, the biggest issue that people have got today is they will go online and I'm not saying I'm the be all or end all or, or like yourself, they'll see people like us who have spent years in our craft and been dedicated to doing things almost daily and they go online and then they start comparing themselves to them immediately. And, and I think what people should focus on is less comparing results and more comparing the workload that they put in order to get there. You know, because when I talk about my, I don't talk about income too much anymore because people always think, well, I want that income. And then I'll give them like a list of what I did. And they're like, I don't want that income anymore. You know, it's like hundreds of videos, hundreds of blogs, hundreds of uh, podcast episodes, thousands of posts, messaging loads of people, loads of phone calls that went nowhere. And then when I show them that list, they don't want it anymore. So I always say to people now, if you're going to compare results 
be willing to compare the workload as well because that's going to be the thing which is separating you and them nothing to do with results and it can be to do with like a background some people will find it easier than others but ultimately it does come down to the work you're doing you know so i would always say to people try to when you come in to start building a brand for the first time just enjoy it just think to yourself i'm going to be learning i'm going to be get better anyway so if anybody does follow me along the way, it's a bit of a bonus because sometimes you can trip yourself over trying to run before you can walk, you know? Yeah, it is like the old saying, isn't it? It took 20 years to become an overnight sensation. And oh, yeah. I, I think people don't appreciate the sheer amount of years worth of time, effort, practicing, you know, honing your craft that goes on before you get that breakthrough. And I think people do give up way too early but uh, I know that there, there are a few shortcuts uh, perhaps that you can take uh, just to try to fast track your own results as best you can I'm just thinking about a post that you wrote recently on Facebook where you I suppose you were calling people out in a way because <laughs> I do that what, what, <laughs> <laughs> what you said was that if you're not making four thousand pounds a month in whatever business that you're involved in, then you're using your social media inefficiently. Can you uh, just tell us a bit about what you mean? It was by probably that? more of a general statement, but the, with a lot of people that I work with, right? Here's here's how a typical marketer's life goes, and I'm talking about network marketers here, affiliate marketers, coaches, and consultants, right? I'm talking in general. So if this applies to you, great. If this doesn't apply to you, whatever. But as I go through this, you're probably thinking, "Damn, that's me." The way the typical marketer tends to live their life these days is they wake up in the morning. The first thing they'll do is scroll through social media for some reason unknown, right? It's a habit. And this is the trouble with social media now. I think social media is worse than drugs because with a drug, I'd have to go meet my dealer. I'd have to go and pay for it. I'd have to travel to go and get it. With social media, it's with you constantly. So this is an addiction that you don't even know you got. And this is an addiction you can't break from because it's glued to your hand 24-7 right? I break free from drugs. You can't break free from your phone because the way technology is going now and the way our kids are growing up, everything's technology based. So a typical marketer will wake up in the morning, right? Scrolling through social media, liking and commenting on people's stuff. Then they'll go and follow some trainer or guru that will say to them, hey, you need to hack the algorithm. You need to spend like two hours commenting and liking people's stuff. So they're commenting and liking, commenting, liking. And then they're being told like, you need to do stories as well. So then they're doing like 20, 30 stories, this awkward feeling of having to document everything they do in their whole entire life. And then and then there'll be the aspect of posting. Oh, I need to post my product. I need to post my opportunity. I need to post my company. They'll post it in groups. They'll post it in buy-sell groups. They'll post it on their profile. And over a period of time, you're talking here like errors, right? And then these same individuals will be contacting people in inbox and this idea of building relationships, which is also something I've got an issue with because... To me, your content is what should be building your relationships for you. You shouldn't have to actively be in your inbox building relationships with hundreds of people because that is all time you're taking away from your wife, your husband, your kids. Build a relationship with the people you love. Don't build a relationship with strangers. That's crazy, right? So when you sort of take all that into account, what we have right now is a large percentage of people that are extremely successful on the surface on social media because everybody is everything's great nobody shits things everything's awesome right that's that's the typical marketer but what we have been behind that are people that are glued to these things for copious amounts of hours per day and they're just using them hugely unproductively you know so when i sort of make that statement it's a bit of a sweeping general statement but the whole point is to just get people thinking am i actually using my time correctly here or have I got so caught up in this addiction with social media that I've become fixated on constant stimulation, which is what social media promotes as you scroll, mental stimulation, the need for mental stimulation gets a lot higher. This is why people can't watch TV without scrolling at the same time. This is why people can't go to the restaurant with their wife or husband without scrolling at the same time. Mental stimulation is one thing. And secondary, the constant need to keep checking and worrying about what people think of you. Half these people don't give a damn and half these people you're never going to meet in your life. So I think what it does is it gives people a really unhealthy relationship with their business because to me, a business is to make money. And when people are there like, I want to help people, I want to build relationships. I'm like, well, you probably should have started a charity then because then there's no pressure for you to make money and you can go and help as many people as you want. But what you've got here is a business and a business is designed to make money. 
So if you're going to spend eight hours making money and you're earning less than X amount of money, you're no different to a day job, but you've got like 10 times more stress because this is glued to you constantly. Whereas a day job, you clock in and clock out. Yeah, I, I can totally uh, relate to that as well because I, I was caught up myself in a, a lot of the vanity metrics that go on with social media, you know, always chasing a greater number of likes, spending more time on the newsfeed, as you say, liking and commenting on posts and trying to push those numbers up uh, ever more. But you're doing that, but you're not really making any money. So yeah, you look like you're a successful marketer. You look like people it's are easy interested. To look successful. Yeah. People look at your posts, they look at your engagement and they think, yeah, this person must be making a load of money because they've got a load of engagement numbers. People are, are clearly interested in what they've got to say, but you can spend all day doing that and still not make any sales. Now, I know also that sales is something that you're very vocal about on your own social media as well. So why do you think then I mean, we're, we're in the sales business. Why do you think then that people are so afraid to sell or reluctant to sell or try to, to avoid doing that at any cost, but still want to make money online? Well, one thing I like to say, people, is everything is selling. Everything in your life, even if you don't have a business, selling is everything. If you're going for a day job tomorrow, you're going to have an interview. On that interview, you're going to try and sell yourself. If you've got a CV, you're going to write down the reasons why they should employ you, trying to sell the idea on why somebody should invest time, money, and effort into you. So everything's a sales process. Even with your kids, Grant Cardone says, say your kids are going to sell you on the idea why they should stay up all night. You're going to sell them on the idea of why they should go to sleep. So everything in life is a sales process, in my opinion. But the trouble that you've got now is on the internet is people are like, no, no, I'm not a salesperson. I'm just recommending things. And I'm like, that's the same thing. Like if you're recommending something, you're trying to sell people on the idea of getting it, right? And that to me is the big issue is because you probably growed up in a similar environment to me. And I'm being quite general here, but I'm shooting in the dark. Maybe you didn't, right? But I grew up where if a salesperson knocked the door, I would have my mom or dad in the background going, tell them to piss off and shut the door, right? Or tell them we're not interested and shut the door. Or if he was walking down the town or walking down the street or however, whoever, you know, brought you up, whoever's listening in, whatever, your parent, guardian, whatever, they would avoid salespeople. Bloke come walking up to you, big smiley face, clipboard, get away from this guy, right? So I think what happens is subconsciously over a period of time, we begin to sort of not only become afraid of salespeople, but also assume that they're terrible people. Now, couple that up with the fact that you've got these stories of old ladies buying things they don't need and have been robbed and all these salespeople and people selling stuff that they shouldn't be selling. And I think what happens is people become this individual where they're like, well, I don't like people hassling me to buy stuff. I grew up and my parents and my family would try and take me away from that. So even if they don't think of this on a conscious level, subconsciously, they don't like selling. Right. And their natural reaction is to walk away from that. And I think that's what holds most businesses back right now is because you can have as many likes and comments as you want. And I'll have this argument with anybody because I get it all the time. These engagement coaches are like, no, you need engagement. I'm like, okay, you ring up British Gas and you tell them you're going to pay in likes and comments this week and you see how far you get. Right. They're going to send people around the white coat and lock you up because you think that's some sort of currency. What I'm going to do is I'll probably get 10 times less likes and comments than you but I'll probably make 10 times more in sales as well. Because if you're in an online business, you make money from selling. You don't make money from being popular. You don't make money from being liked. And that's what you get sometimes in these people online, when they're online, they're so fixated on becoming socially popular because they think if more people are seeing my posts, that's going to make up for my crappy sales skills and I'm going to sell more product. That's not the case. If you get some really good solid scale skills, you don't need as many people to see your posts anymore. That means you don't need to walk around with your phone glued to yourself constantly. You don't need to worry about where your next selfie is being taken. You don't need to worry about 301 stories because if you're good at selling, the only thing you need to worry about is what does your diary look like? How many calls have I got booked in? How many Zooms have I got scheduled this week? That's the only metric that matters in your business. When people are measuring likes and comments, that metric doesn't matter. Your metric matters is how full is your diary? Because if your diary is empty, I guarantee you're earning less than two grand a month in your business. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the way that you approach that then, if you're only focusing on sales and you're not worrying about all of the 
the, the superficial stuff that goes yeah. on in social media, then then it's a it's a much simpler and a far less stressful way to to run exactly. a, an online business. How would you? I mean, what would you recommend to people then who are perhaps reluctant to sell? How can they get into that that more proactive mindset where they they actually want to go out there and make the sale? I always say to people, selling is a service, not something you do to people. You know, if I'm the best coach on planet Earth, I can't help people improve their business if I can't sell my course. Right. I know you're fantastic at copywriting. Some of the copy you put together is awesome. Right. You can help a bunch of copywriting, I believe, is probably one of the most important skills in marketing. Right. The Because the way you carry yourself online and the words that you use is everything. Right. So you can't help people with their copywriting if you cannot sell your course or you cannot sell your consulting or you cannot sell this. If you've got a weight loss product or a health and wellness product or a great business opportunity, you cannot help people if you cannot sell it. So if a lot of people have got this desire to help people, being able to sell goes hand in hand in that. And I always, I always say this the same way. It's a bit like an aerostess, right? Now, if you're an aerostess listening to this, I don't want to sort of make your job sound easier than what it is, but we're just going to take one aspect of the job. One aspect of being an aerostess is to stand at one end of the plane and walk to the bottom of the plane, maybe halfway, depending on how big it is, and ask all those customers, would you like a cup of tea, sir? Would you like two coffee? Would you like a drink? Would you like this? Now, if they wasn't able to do that, a flight experience would be a lot worse for many people. Right. So what they do is they walk down and all they do is ask the question, are you interested in your coffee? They don't go bawling in tears because somebody says no. They don't start questioning their life decisions like, oh, I've been rejected. This is terrible. I don't like this job anymore. They don't they don't do any of this stuff because it's just their job and they are there to make other people's lives or experiences better. And if you can run your business in the same way and understand that some of these people you meet online aren't going to be very nice to you. The same as an aerostess. Some of them will probably go grunt and ignore them, whatever, right? But it's not going to stop them asking the person that's sitting next to them because that's their job. So if you can adopt the same mentality in your business, which is like, well, I've got something great here that's actually going to improve the life of somebody. I don't really care if you say no to me because there might be somebody next to you that does need it. And I think if people can adopt that mentality of all you're doing is asking a question, if you adopt the mentality of I need to get sales, I need to get sales, I need to get sales, I need to recruit, I need to recruit, I need to recruit, I need to hit a rank, that's when it gets difficult. But if you think to yourself, my job is just to give people a chance to take a look, it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. And I think with selling, a couple of tips I will give people is, number one, focus less on what you're selling and more on what it actually does. Right? I hear people time and time again who will talk constantly about how amazing their product is, how awesome their course is, how great this is. People don't give a shit about any of that. What People are quite selfish, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but what I mean is when you're talking to somebody, all they're thinking in the back of their head is two things. What's in it for me? How much is it? And it's as simple as that, right? So instead of dancing around the bush and trying to sort of like talk about stuff that's not relevant or trying to change that, why not just play into that and just get better at dealing with it? You know? So the first tip I would say to people is focus less on what you're selling and more on the outcome. Sell the destination, not the plane. Sell the sizzle, not the steak. You know, when the old saying, go on to Google and look up the training on whether people want a hole in the wall or they want the drill, right? This is what I'm talking about here is, is get used to actually putting out in front of people what you can actually do for them, what they can expect from investing in you or a product, and begin to paint an image of their lifestyle of what it could look like as a result of that. I think of myself as an artist. I've got ideas up here. The only way I'm going to get somebody to see my idea or see that vision is if I can articulate it in such a way they can understand. And if I go talking about all stats and facts and figures, they're not going to get that because I've been in my company for like five years, 10 years, 20 years. How am I going to explain that to somebody in, in 10 minutes? It's impossible. But one thing I can do is I can paint an image of what their life could potentially look like as a result of working alongside me or as a result of investing in me. So for example, what I'll say to people is instead of saying how amazing my mastermind is or how amazing my course is, I'll be just simply saying to them, imagine a life where instead of chasing loads of people around on social media and instead of being glued to this, you can literally speak to 10 people, probably close five of them and switch your phone off for the rest of the day and actually have some time freedom. How does that sound? Yeah, that's some really good advice there. And it does sound like you've got the whole 
time efficiency, social media efficiency, and now sales efficiency down to uh, an art. I mean, just out of interest, how long did it take you then to clear that £60,000 worth of debt that you, you'd accumulated? It took a few years, not because of the lack of income, but because yet when you've got that much amount of debt, you own so many different people. It's almost like you're having to pay that off first, then you have to pay this off, then you have to do this and you have to do that. So over the space of like two to three years, I could probably have paid it off a bit quicker being honest with you but we've lived a great life over the last six years as well you know so it's not been a case of let's do nothing for three years and pay off our debt we've still been on holiday we got married abroad we've still been on cruises we've still gone and uh, traveled the uk we still bought the kids nice stuff we've still had nice cars at the minute it's just a normal seven seat but i have had nice cars in the past but like the thing is like so i could have paid it i, I wouldn't like to give people the wrong impression like you can pay it off in a year i could have probably could have paid it off in a year but I've, I've, it's took me longer to pay it off because it's been a case of, well, that interest rate doesn't go up until like a year's time. So we'll enjoy ourselves at the same time whilst paying it off because there's no real need to pay it off now and then spend the next six months, you know, being, you know, missing out on loads of things because our kids are still growing up. You know, they're still young kids, eight and six years of age, got a daughter on the way in February. I think every single second is still important. So I don't want to be one of those people that are like so fixated with finances that I'm not enjoying every single second that passes by as well, because that is the currency that you do need to focus on in life. Money comes and goes. Whatever financial position you're in right now, understand that you can fix it or make it worse. But time is one thing that once it's gone, it's gone. You know, so don't get so fixated on money that you forget how important time is. That's why all my training and everything is all about efficiency. It's all about getting there quicker because time's a valuable asset. So people think nothing of just throwing away five, five, uh, you know, sort of five minutes of their time because they're like, yeah, five minutes, whatever. And then but if you used to go and rob somebody five pounds, they'd want to kill you. Like, oh, you're a terrible thief, horrible person. That to me is like fixating on a lump of gold when you have a lump of gold in your hand. Because time is just a tool. Something that, uh, sorry, money is uh, money's just a tool. It's just something that comes and goes. Time's something that's very valuable, you know. So find a way to get more efficient. Find a way to appreciate time a little bit more. And also understand that if you have got debts and stuff hanging over your head, yes, get them paid off and get them sorted. But at the same time, don't forget to live as well. Because if you're miserable and you feel like shit, even if you pay the debt off, you're still going to feel like crap anyway. Well, first of all, congratulations on the impending new arrival. <laughs> ah, cheers, bro. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even say, I'm, I'm petrified and excited at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps you've forgotten about... Uh... The, the lack of sleep and, and things like that, but oh, I'm sure you'll, right. you'll get a very rude, rude <laughs> reminder uh, very, very soon. Now, if anybody does want any help with all of this stuff, perhaps they're in a similar position to what you were in, in, mm -hmm. in a load of debt, or perhaps they're using their social media really inefficiently at the moment. Mm -hmm. They're not getting the results that they want yet. On the surface, they're living their best life. To, to coin a, yeah, a well-used sure. phrase. So if anybody does need help turning the, all of this stuff around and actually getting some results, where is the best place for them to come and find you? So one thing I will say before I get into that is I've talked a lot about drug addiction, mental health, and stuff like that, debt. If you're in a position where you are feeling like really bad or you feel crap or anything like that, go and get professional help. There's, there's no, there's no shame in getting help and support because I'm a coach and a trainer, but I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist. There's people out there that are 10 times more qualified than me in this, in the, you know, in like things like addiction and mental health and debt, debt recovery and stuff like that. So I don't want to give people the wrong impression. I think sometimes these days where you kind of get these internet experts and they're like, well, I'm a counselor, I'm a financial specialist, I'm this, I'm this all at the same time, just because of their life decisions. All I've shared today is, is my story and what I've done. And that's what I can do with other people. Best place to find me is just go and reach out to me on Facebook. Just search me Matt Richards. If you put Matt Richards into Facebook or you put Matt Richards into YouTube, you're going to see me pop up. On my profile, you're going to find a link to a podcast and you find a link to a YouTube channel, find a link to a free group. I've got nothing to sell here today. It's not about selling for me. Um, you know, but if you want to sort of follow any of those areas, then that, that, that's where you're going to find the majority of my content. Excellent. Yeah, I'll also put a link to that in the show notes as well. So people will be able to, to find you uh, very easily as well. So I appreciate uh, I think, it, no problem at all. 
thank you so much again for joining me on the episode and uh, i look forward to following uh, your content as always as well because you've always got something uh, something good to say <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> cheers brother thanks for All having right. me on I thanks a lot it. Please visit internetmarketingreveal.com and davidwalker.net for more free content. If you need a domain name for your business, visit domainsreveal.com where you'll find more than 1,000 premium domains. And finally, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.